there was all this hot wind created uh, because of the burning bodies. And so there were children running along the gat, flying kites and laughing in, and they're flying kites in the wind of the dead. And I just, it, that for me was like, this place is so much more sort of real in terms of life and death and the connection between life and death than what we normally witness. And it made me feel like I had some greater understanding of what it means to be a human being and, and be in a body that is going to die. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with travel writer Suzanne Roberts, whose new book, Bad Tourist, just came out. As the name implies, Bad Tourist is a book about the ragged edges of travel, focusing less on idealized adventures than on sloppy misadventures, many of them dealing with love and sex on the road. I'm about the same age as Suzanne, and I visited many of the same places as her around the same time as her, so I found a lot of her observations relatable, particularly as pertains to the kinds of things you don't typically see in commercial travel stories, things like beggars and hustlers and the ethical blind spots we so often stumble through in tourist zones. In the course of our conversation, we talk about the awkwardness that comes with trying to help beggars even when you mean well. We talk about how travel can be a pretext to reinvent yourself as a person, though this ends up being a much sloppier and mistake-filled process than one might think. We talk about what are called the burning gats in India and how they've attracted their own scene of tourists curious to see dead bodies being cremated in public. We go off on several tangents during our conversation, including a good digression about the use of, quote, sensitivity readers in trying to write about other cultures, a process that I'm skeptical about, even as certain small ways of phrasing things in a given travel story can literally be more accurate and ethical than common ways of phrasing them. As usual, this episode is sponsored by Airtrex, which is a great way to save money on round-the-world and multi-stop flight itineraries. Check out their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com and plug in your dream trip to see what I'm talking about. This podcast is also sponsored by Tortuga, who makes backpacks and backpack accessories for the vagabonding traveler. Go to rolfpots.com slash Tortuga to see a selection of their travel packs. And if you see something you like, that rolfpots.com slash Tortuga address will automatically qualify you for 10% off the price of your order at checkout. All right, here's Suzanne and me talking about the notion of what a, quote, bad tourist is. We start by talking about zip pants and what to make of people who wear them. Let's listen in. Yeah, so Suzanne, your book is Bad Tourist, and uh, it the cover says that it um, talks about what not to do when traveling, um, which is a fun description, but I wonder sometimes if any of us is ever a good traveler, that we're all sort of trapped in this tourist matrix, and that actually to become a good traveler, we have to make a lot of mistakes first. Um, and so, you know, you call yourself a bad traveler, you call your book Bad Traveler, um, but is there a platonic ideal or are we all sort of stumbling through, you think? You know, it's interesting because I, I think about that, um, that book by Jamaica Kincaid, A Small Place, mm -hmm. where, where she says, you know, all tourists are ugly human beings. You know, you're, you know, you're at home, you walk around, you, you're with people who are like you, people love you. But the second you become a tourist, you become an ugly thing. And I, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, and I think that the problem is, is that when we are outside of our comfort zone, our lives, our cultures, that we 
we make our mistakes because we bring our own culture with us. You know, there's that ethnocentricity that's just ingrained in us. And I think that we can try to be better tourists or travelers, you know, by making those mistakes and figuring it out and reading a lot. But I don't know if we can ever be good tourists. And I know a lot of people would, you know, disagree with me on that, but I'm just not sure. Well, I, I, I'm of the belief that it's better to go out and make mistakes than to sit at home and, and, and not experience the world and not worry about it. And I think also local people sort of see us as strange people, but not through the lens of post-colonial academic theory, you know, that they see us as someone to sell a souvenir to or, um, you know, someone that they can have a friendship with or here's an exotic American. I've always wanted to meet one of these people. And so I think one interesting thing about your book is that it shows those ragged edges that you could be having what feels like a momentous time in your life and the taxi driver is trying to charge you double and the kid who shines your shoes ends up ripping it you know, to get extra money to fix it. Right. So, um, I guess that's one thing that I want to dive into. And there's a couple of different things, you know, in keeping with the theme of your book, I was really interested in these little ethical quandaries that you bring out that come with being a tourist, but also more than I expected, there's a lot about sex and how to navigate personal relationships and how to make sense of oneself. So, for the sake of my audience, I'll save sex for last because people like to hear about sex and it feels like sex is something that's underwritten about in travel, I think because sometimes we're we're afraid to be vulnerable about that. And so one thing I thought that was interesting is sort of exploring um, this transformation of self. And we often talk about trans- travel being transformative, but oftentimes that means that we're very incomplete and vulnerable. So we'll get to sex second, but let's talk about um, tourism first. And this is sort of a joke question, but you talk about people who wear zip pants. Um, uh-huh. I'll let you explain what those are, but I'm curious, is it worse to be the person wearing zip pants on the tourist trail or the person who's also a tourist making fun of people wearing zip pants? What do you think is worse? I, I think it's definitely worse to be the person making fun of the zip pants, um, uh-huh. <laughs> which is who I, who I was, you know? Um, so the zip pants, right. Are those sort of waterproof pants you get at somewhere like REI that zip from pants to shorts and travelers like them because you can have pants on and then you can quickly take the legs off and, and, you know, wear them as shorts. And I think that there's sort of, um, symbolic for me at least of the sort of, you know, traveler with the floppy hat and the, you know, and the sunscreen shirt and the, and those tan, usually they're tan zip pants and the Tiva sandals or whatever. And, um, and I tried to, I mean, I tried to make it clear that like I was the one making fun of them because I didn't want to sort of put myself in that category, but I was in that category. So like you say, you know, we, we travel and the locals see me and, you know, every other tourist, you know, the person who got off the cruise ship and has only spending 20 minutes in their town and I maybe am there for a month. The the person selling, you know, the Chotsky to either of us sees us as exactly the same. And so the fact that I'm making fun of other travelers is a way to show sort of how my shortcomings, you know. And so I hope it's clear in the book that the person I'm really making fun of is myself. Well, I think something like zip pants, that's almost like a um, an intermediate traveler grade obsession. Like when you're a beginning traveler, you have the zip pants because that's what you've bought. You know, you bought the ultralight equipment. I think sometimes as Americans, especially we, we assuage our travel yearning by buying travel stuff. And yeah. then you become a little bit experienced 
And then you're the person who no longer wears zip pants and sort of looks down their nose at people who do wear zip pants and have all of this travel boutique accessories. And it, But it feels like the process, and maybe this is something you sort of examine in your book, is moving past it so that you've moved past this intermediate phase and you realize that you are still a tourist, regardless of whether or not you wear zip pants. Yeah, I think, no, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. I um, And I think too, you know, I've thought so much about this, but I think this idea of, um, of moving, somehow being able to move from tourist to guest and, you know, and I think that you, you can do it when you go to another place and you immerse yourself in sort of true, true society, not just the exchanges of, of money with a rickshaw driver or, you know, buying, um, something from somebody. I think that if you can go from sort of visiting a place and just having those sort of, you know, capitalistic exchanges to like working somewhere or giving a poetry reading at a college or, you know, finding someone, another writer, say, to stay with and, and see what their life is really like, then I think you transcend both the zip pants, the person making fun of the zip pants, and you finally become someone who, who can travel in a way that is, um, that isn't harmful, you know, and maybe the jet fuel you use on the way there is harmful to the environment, but it's not as harmful as those other exchanges, I think. Yeah, it's interesting in the context of how we travel. Um, you know, that kind of travel takes time. It takes a certain intimacy with the place. And the travel industry is sort of an extension of the hospitality industry. In fact, uh, tourist anthropologists can study, sort of find the, 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 the patient zero of a, a given travel scene when a, when a backpacker wandered in and was, was given hospitality at home. Now, um, there's entire hotels and, and it's sort of this commodified industry. Although I guess, I'd be curious to know what you think. I mean, ideally, we all go towards a more meaningful sort of a guest host relationship as opposed to a consumer um, and then employer or consumer product relationship with the place. But isn't there aren't there benefits to the like the the commodified travel that you know that the people working in guest houses and selling souvenirs probably make more money from the one week tourists rather than the one month tourists who make friends? What do you think? I think in the short term, yes. You know, I think that um, in the short term, you know, people's lives are improved, you know, because they become a driver and they make way more money than they would if they were working in a factory or, or whatever. And I think that their lives and their families benefit from it for sure. But I also think like, I, I think for me, I want to look at the whole sort of system of it and, and the, the short term benefits and the sort of micro benefits I think are, are something that, you know, we all, we all say, well, that, that, that helps them. And we make ourselves, I think, feel better with that. But I also think that if we look at it as a whole system and we look at, well, what's happened to their environment, like, and what's happened to their, their culture, you know, because we've come in, you know, with our Western cultures. And so I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's something I struggle with, you know, and I, I feel like when I write about it, there is no solution for me because I'm, I, you know, I know there's been all these articles about like, should we travel and all of that? And my answer still is yes. But then when the answer is yes, I have to think about how do I, how do I sort of, you know, make my way in the world, you know, with what I know. Um, so the answer is, I think yes and no to your question. 
Yeah, well, I want to look at some specific incidences that you bring up in your book, just because they feel relatable in a sense that we are sort of in this liminal space, we're in this in-between space we really aren't guests and we're going to be gone tomorrow. And the local people who live there understand that. And so one vivid incident you bring up is that when there was a landslide in a village, I think in Peru, and people got herded to the trains, but they let the tourists on the train and your guides and porters sort of had to stay to contend with whatever was coming down the mountain, if indeed it came down the mountain. So talk about that story and sort of the conflicting feelings that come out of being this privileged class um, in a place where, you know, maybe as clients, you were supposed to be the first people on the train, but also it feels uncomfortable when these people you've been, who've been working for you are stuck outside the train. Yeah, it's something I still struggle with. Um, so it happened in um, Aguas Caliente uh, after hiking the um, Inca Trail. And uh, that area is, is really, really prone to mudslides. So there had been a, a devastating mudslide there a couple of years earlier. So everyone in that town, it was a tiny town, knew someone who lost a house or who died. Or So, you know, it was, it was so intimate for them, this danger. And we had been in this, um, you know, rainstorm. We were in the changeable season. So it was it rained more than we thought it would the night before, the last night on the trail. And the, you know, and the, the mountainside started to come down and we followed our guides and ran to the train and, you know, we didn't have tickets for the train that day because we were planning on spending the night in the town, but they let us on anyway, um, as tourists without our backpacks, which we had left back at the hostel. And I realized once I got on the train and seated that the porters and the guides were all outside in the pouring rain and that they were letting only tourists on. And so I didn't realize it until I was sort of in the train and I was so scared. I mean, I was, I was terrified, you know, that that this box Canyon was just going to collapse on us and that we were going to suffocate in mud. And, um, and so I realized how wrong that was that the tourists were the privileged ones who got to go on the train back to Cusco Um, but I also wasn't willing to give up my seat. I don't even know if that would have been an option, but I also was looking out for my safety, you know? And, and so that is a huge moral quandary for me is like, okay, I've been tested with whether or not I would like do the right thing, depending on what I say my morals are, but I'm doing the wrong thing by staying on this train and going, when these other people are still in danger. And luckily it was a, it wasn't as big a slide as they, you know, they, they feared and, um, and nobody died and, and it was, it was okay. So it was a happy ending that way, but it could have been very, very different. And I still struggle with that because I, even all these years later, I think, well, would I have made a different choice? And, and the answer, it, you know, if I'm going to be honest with myself and it does make me the ugly tourist, the answer is no, I was looking out for my safety. So yeah, it, it is a moral quandary for me, for sure. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I, I thought about that as I was reading it. And I think one thing is that local people are probably better equipped to deal with that. They have, they have knowledge of the landscape. They have knowledge of the language and stuff, although that right. doesn't make it feel any better. And you did something very literal, uh, literary, actually, when you were on the train. What did you do on the train as it was uh, as you were waiting to leave? What did I do on the train? Drank wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just thought that that was that it was a very honest um, conundrum where you were worried about your privilege on the train, but it also felt honest that you would drink wine too. That here you're worrying about your privilege and you're also drinking a bottle of wine. That was interesting. 
that's the whole thing, right? Is that we think about, we, we, we think about our privilege, but our part of our privilege is not having to think about a lot of it. Right. Mm. So we mm. think about parts of it, but then we don't think, Oh, I'm, you know, paying a exorbitant amount of money for this, you know, Chilean wine or whatever it is. And, and, and so that part of it, it's interesting that you bring it up because I don't think that at the time that was part of my thinking at all. Hmm. Um, but that's what blind spots are is we can't see them. Well, you, you also talk about, you know, the idea that when we go overseas, we ride on chicken buses. We, we try to travel in the local economy, which is good. I mean, local economies, um, benefit local people. But then you also talk about how, well, maybe this isn't something we do at home. You know, it wouldn't be as an adventure if we had to ride a chicken bus two hours to work every day. Um, just like when you give chocolate to kids in India, well, do you give chocolate to kids at home? Um, and so how does this, how does this, uh, how do you unpack this? I brought those things up because those are things that I've, I've learned, right? When I, when I first started traveling, I didn't think about it. You know, I didn't think about the fact that like I'm giving these, you know, kids in India chocolates when if, can you imagine if I did that, like in, you know, the park here in California, the moms would be like, <laughs> that creep, right? Who's that crazy lady giving my, you know, candy to my chil- children, right? So it's like, we, we don't see it when, you know, when, when, when we're in it uh, at the beginning. And then I have had many years to think about these things and, and, why, why would that be okay? And I think it would be okay because there is this sense, right? That once you go somewhere, everything is different, right? And everything becomes an adventure. And, um, you know, and riding on that really uncomfortable bus with like all those packages of, you know, things and where you're sitting kind of in between seats, sometimes it, it's an adventure because it's so different, but at home, it would just be really uncomfortable, and long and hot and tiring and, and all of those things. And so I think that we, sometimes we do things in this sort of name of adventure for ourselves and excitement for ourselves without thinking about how it affects other people. And, um, so I've, I have spent a lot of time thinking about that and I would not give out chocolate right now. And I wouldn't, you know, and I, and I, and I would still ride on local buses. I, I like, I actually like that because I like to see the way in which locals really live. But I, I don't think I would is, think about it so much as, oh, this is a great adventure like I did maybe when I was, you know, much younger. Well, I, one scene in your book that really brings out the absurd, absurdity of this sometimes is giving a power bar to a leper, um, yeah. which seems like such a strange collusion of like Western ideas of what nutrients are versus the actual leper's situation. Um, can you describe that situation? Yeah, he had no idea what it was. I mean, we were in Varanasi and he was begging um, and he, um, you know, his his hands were were very um, disfigured because of the disease. And so, you know, I handed him this like shiny, I don't even think they make power bars anymore. Maybe they do. I haven't seen them in years, but it's like shiny wrapped, you know, congealed energy food. And he just looked up at me like, what is this, you know? And so then I took it back and like unwrapped it for him and then gave it to him. And he still sort of looked at it like, this is not helpful, you know? And my friend who I was with, uh, a traveling um, uh, companion, Sholay, who's an Iranian poet and translator, um, she just, I mean, she was, she's more well-traveled than I am and uh, more worldly and, you know, and she's looking at me like, what are you doing? You know? 
And, um, and I realized right then that what I had done is, was completely ridiculous and even feels more ridiculous with, you know, looking back through the years on it. But yeah, I, I made all kinds of like travel faux pas because I just was trying to be helpful, but in my own little bubble and it wasn't helpful at all. Well, I think sometimes there's limitations to how helpful you can be. Um, Another interesting scene was when you're in Nicaragua and you see these very, very young prostitutes working the square and you see an older tourist who may or may not be interested in these prostitutes and you're trying to figure out how to help them. But it really brings up this question of how much can you really help someone that you've known for 13 minutes um, who lives, you know, on another part of the world from you? What, uh, how did you, how did you wrestle with, with ideas like that? How do you wrestle with ideas like that? Well, you know, and that was sort of my immediate, always my immediate thought, like, oh my gosh, I, I would, I would like to help them. Right. But then, you know, you have to take a step back and say, well, what, first of all, why is it my job? I mean, that's that whole like savor, save, you know, the white savior complex, right. That, oh, I can come in and save the day when, when really that's not helpful at all. You know, I mean, they, they are li- living in a, a world with such limited choices for girls and women. And that's, that's the part that, that where I start to think, okay, how can I make change in the world to the systems, not not necessarily those individual girls? Um, because you're right, there's nothing I could do to help. There's nothing I could do to save them, and they wouldn't even probably say they needed saving, right? It's just my you know my interpretation of it. And so I step back and I think, okay, well, how can I you know donate time or money to organizations that help? with, you know, um, the, the problems in this actual system, you know, the problems that create, uh, child prostitution that create, you know, sex trafficking, all of that stuff. And so I, I don't think, you know, even though the impulse is, I want to help them individually. I don't, I don't think they're, it's possible really. Yeah. I think that there's sort of a first world middle-classness to that assumption, you know, that you, we we live these, these sort of compartmentalized lives where we can solve, we solve problems that are just sort of chopped up into consumable portions. When in fact, you know, you don't really have the rest of your life to affecting the, the economy of this place or or affecting the culture, you know, the, the, the gender disparities in a place like this. And so, yeah, I guess they call it uh it's the 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 white savior complex, but it's it's sort of this I guess this middle class arrogance that you think just because you're there you should I guess it's a mix of guilt and arrogance, isn't it? This this idea that you, it makes you feel bad, but that somehow because you're there you can solve it in a consumer way like you solve so many other problems in your first world life. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely it. I think that that's a, a mix of guilt and arrogance. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there's there's a lot of interesting scenes in India, uh, and one involves Varanasi. It's a city I've been to. I've been to so many of the same places around the same time in this book uh, as you have. And there's something a little bit macabre about Burning Ghat tourism. I'll let you explain what it is. But when I was there, it was almost as if everybody, all the tourists, and I was hanging out with backpackers at the time, wanted to go to the Burning Ghats to watch the bodies of, of dead people burn. It sounds macabre, but everybody was doing it. What is burning gat tourism, for lack of a better phrase, and what why does it appeal to people and what happens there? Well, um, 
we uh, got up very, very early and um, and got a boat down the Ganges to go to these ghats where they burn the bodies um, on the sand. And it, it is it sounds, you know, when I, as I say it, it sounds macabre. Like you said, it's a tourist attraction. Um, in many ways, I, you know, I mentioned that I, I wouldn't take any photographs. I felt like it was a very, it is very sacred actually. Um, and, and just so people know it's, it's a sacred city. They don't do this everywhere in India that, um, right. it's a uh, Varanasi, right. which is sort of a sacred Hindu city where people go and they, there's more virtue, I guess, if you die and are cremated in this holy city. Well, you have a chance of um, sort of breaking the cycle of life and death and um, finding true paradise if you are cremated in Varanasi. And that's that's the belief. And um, and in the book, I mentioned that, you know, um, that, that everybody is 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 cremated and then put into the river. Um, there are some exceptions. Um, people that are considered pure, like babies and um, pregnant women and um, holy men, they're put into the river whole. So you actually will see sometimes bodies in the in the river. Um, and interestingly, if you've been um, bitten by a venomous snake, uh, they think that you might just be under the spell of the snake. So they put you in to the river hole and then try to fish you out downriver to cremate you. Um, they, they miss a lot of bodies, of course, um, once you've been sort of purified of, of the snake venom. Um, so, so it is, it's a holy city and, um, and, and people come from very far away. You know, you'll see bodies tied on the top of SUVs because they want to, you know, cremate their, their grandmother or whatever in, in Varanasi to sort of help her through her, um, her cycle of, of, you know, reincarnation and, and sort of break that cycle. So, we went um, to watch the bodies burn, and it 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 is a very very sacred um, ritual, and um, and I think that we're so interested in it coming from the West because we're so far away from death and the actual process of what happens to the body. And so when someone dies, you know, we embalm them sometimes or, and so they sort of look like they did in life in a casket and then they're closed up or, or the cremation happens behind closed doors. And, um, and I, I think it's, you know, it's, we're interested in it because it's something that we don't have access to. And I really actually think that the way they do it in India makes so much more sense and, and creates so much more closure and in fact, because of that experience, uh, when my mom died three years ago, I wanted to watch her cremation. Huh. And I, huh. yeah, I, um, I, you know, I basically asked the, um, the crematorium, can I, can I come and watch? I, I'd like to see it. And they acted like that was a very strange request that that's not something people usually request. And they didn't want me to. Um, and they, they kept saying, it's not going to be, you know, it's kind of put into this oven thing and, and, you know, and, and we're going to have to like s schedule it out. So we're going to have to hold on to your mom's body for like two weeks. And I thought, oh, my mom wouldn't have wanted that. So I just gave up on it, but it was something I wanted for closure because I thought it would be helpful to me in some way. And I would never have, have thought that before I, I witnessed that in Varanasi. Yeah, when I was in India, not in Varanasi, but I was in Pushkar, and a friend of mine died, a, a friend who I grew up with who had had muscular dystrophy and wasn't expected to live past his 20s. It was really interesting to deal with that process, with that grieving process, when I was in India, where death is so much more of a part of the conversation. Um, it felt, I don't know, it felt like a good place to be as I worked through losing my friend there. Um, 
One thing about the burning gats is just that there's actually a little economy that's grown up about it. Did, were you asked to buy firewood for people? Yeah. Yeah, we were asked to donate to people's pyres because it's very expensive. I mean, you know, the, the wood is so expensive. And so there were people, old, old people in this sort of, um, you know, it was kind of like a, I don't want to say a warehouse, but it was sort of a half building, half outdoors. And they were on these like wooden slats and they were basically waiting to die and they were collecting money for their pyres. Hmm. So, yeah. So we, we gave some money to a, an old woman. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our guide said that it would be good for our karma. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. There's just such a weird tourism dynamic there because uh, sometimes I wondered, well, is this person really gathering money for, pilgrims pyres or is this part of a scam you know it, i mean it's part of that uncertainty that you always fear as a tourist that you look at quite a bit here and i think in pushkar you also talk about little kids who want shampoo or, or trying to sell you souvenirs that that even as there's sort of this death tourism aspect to the burning gats in varanasi there's also kids who want to shine your shoes and and things like that um yeah. how did how did yeah. that and how did that sort of join the dynamic of that city for you? Well, you know, I remember um, we were uh, leaving the um, the, the um, cremation site and there was all this hot wind created uh, because of the burning bodies. And so there were children running along the gat flying kites and laughing in and they're flying kites in the wind of the dead. And I just, it, that for me was like, this place is so much more sort of real in terms of life and death and the connection between life and death than what we normally witness. And so, yeah, there were the children who were, you know, who were trying to sell us things. And then there were the, you know, um, beggars, uh, looking for money for their pyre. And the whole thing for me was just, it just felt so raw and real. And, um, and it made me feel like I had some greater understanding of what it means to be a human being and, and be in a body that is going to die, you know? Mm. And, and I thought, when I was there, I thought, you know, this is something I will take with me for the rest of my life. It's, I will never be the same person. And of course you come home and then you, you know, have the same concerns and, you know, you, you think you're going to, maybe you change a little, but in that moment you feel like you are a different person, you know? Yeah. Well, you use the phrase, it makes you wonder what to do with your aliveness, which I, I enjoyed that, um, that it really, it's a kind of a memento mori. It's the reminder, well, you too will will have yeah. uh, a body that doesn't serve you anymore. And so what are you going to do with your aliveness? I like that. Mm -hmm. I'm working on a book about essays about grief next. Hmm. I've had a lot of cool people to me die in the last few years. And, um, and so it is, it's a question that I, I come up with over and over and over. Like I, I'm alive today, you know? And then I think part of that is, you know, connected to travel for me because I don't like, I don't spend money on, on things aside from travel, really. And it's for me, it's like, that's what I want to do with my aliveness. You know, despite all the problems we talked about, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, despite the fact that I feel, you know, that, that my presence isn't always the best thing for local, you know, culture, it, it, it does make me feel more alive if I'm in new places and seeing the way human beings live in different parts of the world. 
Yeah, India, India is, a, is an interesting place for that too, because you know you feel that memento mori aliveness because the culture has more of a relationship with death. But then also, I think you can feel bad about how you're affecting a culture. But the Indians I met were pretty dynamic and smart. You know that you meet poor people oh, yeah. oftentimes, but then people are not just you know passive victims of tourists. It, it felt like people were being very clever. That I, I and actually you write about this. The people like. To meet Americans. Uh, when I was there, it's because uh, India was sort of booming as a as an IT hub, and uh, I think Indians saw a lot of partnership with Americans. And so, it's almost like you were like I was a celebrity. Sometimes people wanted to take a picture with me, and that happened to you too. And I think it, one another interesting scene in your book is of the many people you met in this context. One was a couple. I think it, it was after you went swimming in bikinis, which is not something that normally happens in India. This is part of a chapter, I think it's called A Hundred Boyfriends. Uh, and yeah. the and the yeah. conversation that flows out of it is sort of a way to transition into um, the the cultural dynamic of a place to the sort of the sexual dynamic of travel. But A um, Hundred Boyfriends is sort of how you characterize your past love life to this woman and her husband who sort of had an arranged marriage. And so what was it like to sort of navigate honestly this aspect of your lives with somebody with a, from a culture with completely other different assumptions? Well, you know, and I think that this, again, um, that trip was from 2007. So I think things are changing um, pretty quickly in India. But but at that time, you know, especially in the villages, you know, and there's still arranged marriages, um, certainly, but they there were more common back back then. And um, and I had, you know, I, I had actually gone to we had gone to um, Mumbai uh originally because an Indian friend of mine was, was getting married. And so we kind of planned our trip around her wedding, but she wasn't marrying someone in her cast. She wasn't marrying somebody that her parents had set her up with, even though her parents tried very, very hard to set them up. And so the wedding eventually was, it was called off because her parents wouldn't go. And it, you know, later on she ended up marrying him and it worked out great. And you know, everybody's happy now, but so I'd had experience with sort of friend, a friend who lived here and taught with me that was Indian. So I knew a little bit about arranged marriages, but she sort of bucked the system. She was very independent. So when I ran across, when, when Shalai and I ran across this couple um, at this resort at the, you know, uh, uh, on the edge of the Arabian Sea, and it came out when we were talking that their marriage had been arranged I was really interested in that because, you know, I was sort of just had left a husband that, you know, as I mentioned in the book, like my parents probably could have done a better job setting me up with a husband than I did, you know, my first time around. And, you know, we just don't really live that way. So I was so interested in her life, but she was really interested in my life because I had, you know, lots of boyfriends and, when she asked, you know, how many boyfriends have you had? And I, I joked, Oh, a hundred. She was like, what, you know, and, and how are you ever going to get married to this boyfriend you now have? And, um, and I realized like she could be right. Right. Like, well, that is a lot of boyfriends. And, and, um, and so we just both were really interested in each other's lives because they're so different. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how by Indian standards, hundred boy, the, the notion of hundred boyfriends, sort of makes one damaged goods, but you were literally working through, you're still sort of trying to find the best version of yourself. And I think one interesting thing that travel can offer is sort of this 
sense of reinvention or this opportunity to try on different versions of yourself. But as you explore in your book, it can be sort of a ragged edged thing. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you. I mean, do you think that ever works? I mean, because we always do that, right? We always like, oh, you know, I'm going to, I can go travel. No one knows me here. I can be a different version of myself. I can be someone who doesn't talk so much or someone who, you know, doesn't drink so much or someone who, you know what I mean? You could, you could try to be a different version of yourself. And my question is, do you think that ever works? Well, that's the question, right? Um, (laughs) Because in a sense, this is a lot of your book is about sex and about what that dynamic uh, uh, says. Right. And so I think, um, it's obviously different for men and women, but one thing I always had a faint jealousy in my backpacker days for these guys um, who are like guides or expats or something, guys who sort of know the culture better than I do and are sort of more appealing to the random backpacker lady. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so in a sense, I think that that being a new person can be as simple as having a fling with your kayak guide, as you do in the book, and sort of having lower stakes. You can think, huh, well this worked or this didn't work. One funny thing about that story, I'll let you explain it in more detail, is that he sort of came wanting a one night or two night stand and you decided a one night stand was enough. So I think, yeah. I think um, trying on different versions of yourself is doable, but it's always very sloppy. And it, as it might, as the idea might imply that none of us do it very well. And I think it's through the mistakes as much as through the refinements of this process that we actually become different people. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. And and I think in that case, you know, I I went to Puerto Rico with a a girlfriend and we were sort of newly divorced and trying on these new versions of ourselves, these versions of ourselves that would like could go and have a vacation fling and be totally fine with it. And, you know, um, and I got into the middle of this fling and realized it didn't work for me, you know, that I was sort of using this local as a, a sort of fantasy experience, like part of my island experience and like bringing back a souvenir, like, you know, and I, and I realized it was, it was the wrong reason for having an affair. I mean, you know, I was attracted to him. He was a very attractive local kayak guide. Um, but in the middle of it, you know, I, I decided I couldn't do it. And so I ended up having to spend a really uncomfortable night, you know, basically turning him away all night long because he didn't understand why I was gung ho on night one and night two, I was like, no, nah, I'm done. I'm done with this. This isn't working for me. And it was part in part because I was trying to be, you know, free and exciting and independent. And, you know, one of those women who could like just sleep around and it was like totally fine. And, and I, I, I kind of like admire that a little bit and it, but it just wasn't me you know, and I admire it because our culture says not to do it in some respects as women. Um, but I just, it, I was doing it for the wrong reasons. And so I was, I was, it was messy and sloppy and I got caught in the middle and I was blame myself. You know, I still remember that walk on the beach the next day thinking, Oh my God, what, you know, what am I doing here? And, um, and so that was trying on a new identity and it didn't quite work. (laughs) Yeah, well, that felt that felt very true too. You know, you're talking about how you know sexual women are looked upon sexually at home. There's sort of an anonymity that comes with travel um, that allows you to try different things. And it's interesting. You sort of contrast yourself to a woman. I think your name was Mina in Mexico, 
who had a fling and just stayed in Mexico. She liked being the object of attention for a younger, handsomer, more romantic to her men, it seemed. So is is there a certain agency in sort of the sexuality of the traveler or is it always messy and complicated? Do you think, do you think Mina came out of that okay or how does that work? Well, you know, I, I, it's so funny that you mention her. Her, her real name is not Mina um, because I couldn't, I couldn't remember her last name to get a hold of her to to look at the book to um you know to say that it would be okay to use her real name and you won't believe this but about a I don't know week and a half ago something like that I was looking through some old papers and and things and I found the note I mentioned the note like in the other chapter where I have the affair in Mexico and the guy writes take quieto you know on the note mm-hmm. I found that note and the note also had my friend, I'll call her Mina, had her name, her full name, hmm. her last name. She has an unusual last name. And so I, I mean, you know, Facebook, right? You can find anybody these days. I looked on Facebook. I found her. I wrote to her. I sent her the um, digital arc of the book. She read it and she got back to me. And interestingly, she said, wow, you know, she's like, you know, you, she said something like, you really, um, painted me, you know, as a, a shit show. She goes, but it was accurate at that time in my life. And she said, and I, um, but I, you know, more thought went into it than, than just leaving my husband. Like, you know, I didn't just have an affair and leave him. There was so much more behind that. But of course I didn't see that. Right. I only saw what I, wanted to see was that she could just cut her ties and be done and move to Mexico. And so because I only knew her for a couple of weeks, right, in this language school, I created a narrative for her that was somewhat true, but not entirely true. And so I wrote to her and I said, Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Like, is it okay that you know, that that was my perception of you at the time? And she said, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, it's fine. We're good, you know. And, um, and so I actually just sent her a a signed copy of, of the book, but, um, but I'm so happy to be back in touch with her. But it, if I had known that information, you know, a year ago, I would have written a line that said, I contacted her many years later and found out that it wasn't as easy for her as I thought it was just because I'd want to be honest with the reader about that, but I didn't know. So it's, it's an interesting thing that you brought that up. Yeah, well, she almost serves as a literary device. You use the line, uh, living in, liking to live in the present tense of your own life. You know, this idea that you're just embracing the moment without thinking about consequences too much. And it feels like as a literary device, Mina is this alternate version of yourself. You could just let go and throw yourself in the situation. But it sounds like even for Mina, it wasn't as simple as you perceived it. Right. She wasn't what I needed her to be, you know, I needed to have the idea of her as a goal. Like I can, you know, I can just cut my ties. I can do what I want. I cannot worry about, you know, the future. And, um, and I, I'm sure I overlaid that on her because I needed it. I mean, it was sort of like that other woman I met backcountry skiing, you know, I saw her as this like fearless, um, woman who had just left her husband. And I, again, wanted to believe that there were women in the world like that. And I'm sure there are, but I don't know that she was, I've never seen her again either. Um, but she was also sort of somebody I was, I was trying to be more like, 
And I think we do that, right? We, we look at people and we make things up about them so that we can admire them or so we can, you know, disparage them or whatever, but it's half of it's made, made up in our own minds, I think. Yeah. And so much of travel is, I mean, so much, we have this idea of other places that don't involve the beggars and the pickpockets and the touts, you know, um, we have this idea of how relationships sh- should be that don't involve, you know, the, the fights and the breakdowns and, and the disappointments and the things like that. And so it's interesting how travel can converge in those ways. Is there's, I'm a dude, right? So I'm reading it from a dude point of view. Is there something, is there a pointed, is there a special energy for women who are traveling with these questions? Because I think, you know, one of the best-selling travel memoirs in the last decade and a half is Eat, Pray, Love, which is a post-divorce memoir. Um, that's not completely travel-oriented, but I'm just wondering, is there something... Is this more universal than just Suzanne traveling the world? Do you think that there's there's um, an aspect of travel that maybe may not even be specific to women that can allow you to navigate your selfhood and your relationships? I hope so. I mean, I, I hope it's about something, you know, bigger. I mean, I think that in order for a piece of writing to be successful, it has to be you know, a memoir or, you know, personal essays. It has to be about the, the person, but it also has to be about plus something. Right. And I guess the, for me, the plus something is this idea, you know, that, you know, the the first idea we talked about this idea of like, how, you know, how do you become a better bad tourist? Right. How do you, how do you navigate the world in in a way that causes less harm? Um, so that, that would be the first thing, but I think too, um, I think women have been taught to feel a lot of shame around their sexuality and, and really just around their, their hunger, you know, like any kind of hunger, sexual oh. hunger, food hunger, you know, hunger for um, independence in new places, hunger for power, right? And so I, I think women have been taught, like, your hunger is, is a bad thing. And of course, it causes all kinds of problems for women. And I wanted to try to deconstruct that idea a little bit, you know, and I inherited it from my mother who was a beauty queen. Right. Um, and she believed that her value was, um, dictated by the way men saw her like through the male gaze. And I'm, I'm trying to fight against that, you know? And, and so I have had, um, some female readers who have said, and even much older, I, you know, I just had a woman who read the book. She was like 80. And she said, you know, I was so angry at your narrator. Like I was just saying, get a life girl. She said, but then by the end, I realized I saw myself in there too. And so really I'm, I'm hoping to hold up a mirror to readers and say, look, I've done these things too. I've felt bad about it. I'm over feeling bad about it. And you should feel better too. Like it, and you should feel also free if you want to tell your own story about it because the act of storytelling is the transgressive act, right? Like talking about affairs, talking about cheating on my ex-husband, talking about, you know, um, promiscuity and all those things. It is, it's the transgressive act because it's, it's the, the, I'm telling the story, you know, I'm kissing and I'm telling, and we're not supposed to do that as women. So that's my hope. Right. Well, it also makes it human. You know, we're, we're at our most human when we're when our, our, our least socially acceptable or what feels to be socially acceptable. Um, and it, and that's another thing that, that flies into the, um, that ties into the anonymity of travel is just the idea that you can 
get away from the you can chase hungers that you maybe don't you feel you don't feel you have permission to chase back home as you as you're trying to move from someone who sees themselves as validated by the male gaze how does moving through hunger what is it what did it teach you i guess for lack of a better word through travel i you know i did a lot of traveling alone and or traveling with girlfriends um and having to rely on myself you know um i think taught me that I could navigate my world at home by myself and that I didn't need any help doing it. You know, I I think again, I was at least, you know, I'm not going to say all women, but I was told right as, as a young girl, um, young woman that, that I would always need some kind of help navigating the world. And when you travel alone, your greatest fears come true. Like my biggest fear was getting sick by myself. And what happened is I got, I was in by myself in a hostel in Peru and I got so sick that I thought I was going to die, you know, and, and I didn't die. And so when you go through the things that are scary, I think they give you confidence. And I think so many of our sort of, I don't know if I want to call them personality flaws. I guess I can call them personality flaws in myself are caused by an insecurity, an insecurity that you, that you can't do it on your own. And I think that that was, that was really helpful to me seeing that I, that I could do scary things on my own. It feels like there's almost a spiritual aspect, um, that, that, or a spiritual factor that ties all of these stories together. And I'm actually going to give you a quote by, by a spiritual writer. You can guess who this person is. And then, I don't know, I, I felt, um, like it related to what you were writing about. This writer says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self, which cannot exist. I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and the thirst for experiences, for power, honor, knowledge, and love to close this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. As I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself in the world, I am hollow, and my structure of pleasure and ambitions has no foundation. I am objectified in them. Um, can you guess who that was? Mm-mm. That was Thomas Merton. I'm not sure. He's a he's a Cistercian monk. Um, so probably uh-huh. yeah. the furthest person that you think of, like a person who is traveling for sensual pleasures. But I thought it was interesting. There's almost like a, a travel travel maybe forces you to come to terms with your, with your false self? Am am I reading a spiritual aspect in your book that isn't there? Or what do you think of this? Uh, You know, no, I, I mean, I think those are definitely things that I, you know, that I would, that I have been thinking about. Um, it reminds me, you know, it's interesting. Um, what you read reminds me, my, the friend that I traveled with a lot, Shalai Wolfie, she's, as I said, she's a translator and she translated a tar um, who's a Sufi mystic, you know, mm. and, and Atar is all about this idea of getting rid of the false self and getting rid of, um, false ambition and, and, um, and your ego and, and all of that. And, and it's a wonderful translation. Um, it's, uh, it's, the book is called the conference of the birds, but, um, but I think I've, I've, you know, spent the last few years reading, um, you know, some, some more spiritual, um, material. And I, I think too, again, like dealing with so much death in my life the last few years, I think that that probably has, you know, come into my writing in, in some, in some way. Um, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I wouldn't, I don't think I would have, you know, told somebody that my book was, 
you know, had a spiritual element because I would be afraid that somebody would say, oh no, I don't see that at all. You know, um, it's all about your foibles and it's all about the, you know, physical, um, love and, but there is something to that. And, and probably I have so many chapters about India and India is such a spiritual place that, that I think it would, it would enter the writing. I think it's about ragged edges. I think that's one thing that your book, it doesn't hide, you know, the the beggars and the moral quandaries of tourism when you're in that tourist zone. It doesn't, uh, you know, hide, you know, the the, the difficulties of of uh, seeking to, to sate certain hungers when one travels. But then also, I think there's almost this commercial idea of travel spirituality, air quotes, when in fact, sometimes it feels like the ragged edges are what sort of forces you into a more spiritual relationship with things. No, I agree you on that. I mean, I think about the whole like, you know, white Western, you know, upper middle class women going on yoga retreats. And I'm not saying that to disparage it. Like I myself have thought, well, I should go on a yoga retreat. But there is also that recognition of like, well, where did yoga come from? And and what and and what does it mean if I'm co-opting this set of spiritual, you know, values? And again, like I, I think that we all have our experiences and, and need our experiences. But I I think we also have to look at them, you know, which is why I included that chapter, you know, stretching the thigh fat about, you know, taking a yoga class and it not being the sort of spiritual thing I wanted it to be right. This was India. It was supposed to be where, you know, yoga was born. And, and of course it was, you know, it wasn't that at all. And, and so we do, we overlay, I think we overlay our expectations on experience and we also overlay a different self, you know, like your quote. Um, so that gives me a lot to think about. Yeah. You know, I actually want to, I want to go back to the idea of the, you know, the beggars on the street and, and that being at part of, of travel writing. And certainly it wouldn't be part of a more service piece, right. You mm-hmm. know, as you and I both know, right. That they don't want that because it's more marketing, uh, a, a service piece, just so my listeners know, a service piece being, how would you define a service piece? It's sort of a what to do and how, what to seek type article, right? Yeah, it's an article that that tries to motivate someone to go to a place. Yeah. Whereas armchair travel, which I would I would consider my writing, um, is the person doesn't need to go there because they've already been there with you. Um, they might want to go, but they might not. Um, it's not meant to encourage somebody, you know, to, to go eat certain things and, and, um, sleep in certain hotels and things like that. Um, but no, I, I've done a, a number of service pieces this year and, um, and some of the things, you know, I, I'll tell the editor, well, you know, I learned this really interesting thing, but it's not very complimentary about a place. And the editor says, Oh no, leave that out. Right. And, and so I don't want to leave that out, but here's my question for you. And it's a serious question because I had a, a reader, I actually hired a sensitivity reader to read my book, um, to make sure, cause I, I know even though I'm trying very, very hard not to objectify locals and not to, um, write people in stereotypical ways. I, I get that they come through that way cause they're, they are filtered through my white Western lens. So I had, um, someone read it and she worried um, that the parts about India, she called it poverty porn. And I thought about it for a long time and I, I didn't, I didn't take those things out of the book because I thought they were important. But do you worry about that in your own writing, this idea of, of uh, writing poverty porn or this idea of, of sort of being exploitive in describing poverty? 
Yes, but maybe not in that sensitivity reader way. In fact, I think even sensitivity readers are also fall under this Western middle class assumption, you know, that somehow um, sensitivity readers, instead of good reporting and honest evocation, are going to solve your narrative problem. Um, and so, yeah, and then also I've, I've read some fairly smart writers writing in what feels kind of dumb about like slum tourism, you know, like going to, right, right. Going to a favela in Rio and, and sort of worrying about it on the page. And it's like, you know, I've been to art shows in favelas. I mean, just get off the bus and then you can yeah. get, get away from your guilt. Like spend, instead of spending an afternoon there, spend a couple of weeks there. Part of the problem with this is, is the stereotypes. And so I think, I think slowing down helps. But, you know, the title of your book is Bad Tourists. And I think as tourists, we're sort of consumers. As, and as consumers, we're going to come up against parts of societies, be they pickpockets or beggars or souvenir vendors. I wrote a whole book about souvenirs, so I sort of know about this. Yeah, that are just wonderful. Well, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. It made me think about this sort of thing. And I think that if you're being repertorial, repertorially honest, you know, just like you don't know what really happened to your friend Mina – um, maybe you don't really know all the dynamic going that underpins the poverty here, but I don't think travel writers need to be post-colonial scholars as long as you're being thoughtful and you are admitting to your own uh, the limitations of your own perspective, then it's okay to write about poverty in a way that doesn't result in poverty porn. And, and again, maybe I'm being a little bit cynical, but I, th I really think sensitivity readers are such a, such a Western preoccupation. Um, that might be tied more to the academy than to good shoe leather reporting. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think so too. And I've read, I've read different, you know, takes on, on the sensitivity reader. Um, I was, I was mostly just really wondering sort of what she would, you know, what she would say. And, um, and it's interesting because one of the things she said, which I did change, and which I noticed that is the way that you referred to the man with leprosy. I, um, I had referred to him as a, a leper and I may have actually in, in the uh, advanced reader copy and then, and then changed it to um, a man with leprosy because she said, you can't, you know, you should not, um, you know, um, refer to someone by their disease. And it was, it's interesting because it's, it wasn't something I would have ever thought about and I thought, well, it doesn't hurt to change it, right? Hmm. Um, but but it, it made sense to me too, you know? And I, I think it makes sense in the way that like, I like to look at language and, and the language we've inherited and the way that our language shapes reality, you know? Um, I had mentioned Jamaica Kincaid in A Small Place. She talks about how the only language she has to complain about colonialism and slavery is the language of the oppressor so that it isn't ever going to be as effective as she, as she would hope, because it's not her language. It always helps. The language she uses is always on the side of the oppressor. And I just spent a lot of time thinking about that, thinking about the things we say and, and, um, you know, and, and I agree with you, like, we don't need to be post-colonial scholars in order to write about our experiences of place. But I, but I sort of am interested in it just as an intellectual exercise. Well, I, I remember I didn't have a sensitivity, sensitivity reader, but when I wrote Souvenir, I, decide, I decided to call the people who lived at Mount Vernon um, enslaved people instead of slaves. Um, uh -huh. And it make, it's the same sort of logic. I, I see the point about changing the name, you know, a person with leprosy, leprosy as opposed to a leper, in, in part because leper is sort of a metaphor 
you know, that oftentimes doesn't even ref- apply to, to leprosy. And so a, a person with leprosy, I can completely see that change, just like I decided to sort of underpin the humanity of the people at Mount Vernon by calling them enslaved people instead of, of slaves. So it's a, it's a great exercise. And I think um, since I'm not in the academy, I might, I might land on the side of, of journalism more than um, sort of the, the post-structural academic take on what language is. Um, but that's interesting. I, I think that when you see someone, when you see a person who has leprosy, sort of the leprosy is, is front-loaded, you know, that they're, they're, they're begging and so their leprosy is what you see first. And calling them a leper underscores the limitations of how much you know about them, right? Um, this yeah. almost feels like another podcast. It's, it's, it's interesting um, that, um, that there are limitations that, and that because words like leprosy or slave have been used in metaphorical ways so much, maybe it is good to be careful. Um, and maybe, maybe just the sensitivity readers should also be trained in journalism. Um, this is a complaint. This is, I'm sort of in the weeds on this one, but like going to a, a place like AWP, it's a conference for writers, often under writers, an academic okay. umbrella. Yeah. And, and just how far the memoir panelists are from the journalism panelists and how few journalism panels there are, you know, that um, one frustrating thing in a place like AWP is that memoirists are are articulately ar- arguing for invention, but, you know, journalists might say, well, that's fake news. What? How does that differentiate from fake news? So again, I think everything is ragged edged, right? You know, there's no, that your realm of experience, even as a sensitivity reader, might not be informed by what it's like to be reporting in the field as a journalist and travel writer. What do you think? Well, you know, I I agree with you completely because I have no training in journalism. So I, I do see a difference. And I also think that journalists are really busy. Like they're busy reporting and working in the field Whereas I think, you know, academics, you know, and I have been an academic my whole adult life. Um, part of our job is is to sort of examine these these kinds of things. And we also, you know, get funding from our um, our institutions to go to conferences where we talk to other people about our sort of musings about about these things, about post you know, post-structural language issues and, you know, all these different, um, more academic things. So I, I do think there's a huge, a huge difference. And I, I would make a terrible journalist, terrible. <laughs> I'd be fired in five minutes. I think the more overlap in these disciplines and in all your life experiences, the better, you know, because academics have great points about how to unpack language, but they don't have a lot of that field experience about how to find stories and about how to trust your own reporting. Whereas, you know, reporters might not have a, have time to think about what language they're using. And since we're coming to the top of the hour, I wanted to wrap things up with a with a question for you, which is, you know, maybe specifically for women travelers, but for travelers in general, how can we be better bad tourists? I think that we're all doomed to be a bad tourist sometimes. That we're all in different uh, we're all at different levels of the zip pants scale. Um, but what advice would you give to young travelers and especially young women travelers who are getting started and maybe admit that sometimes we'll be bad tourists, but want to be better bad tourists and want to come out of the experience changed as a result? So I guess my advice would be to learn the learn, learn some languages and also to try to find people, maybe, you know, maybe you're a poet, you could find other poets to visit maybe your teacher, maybe you could find a way to go um, visit a school and and sort of see how they do things. 
maybe you're a doctor and you could find a way to practice or to, you know, tour some hospitals with your colleagues. But I think getting, getting a more authentic experience is, is a way, a way into a culture that you wouldn't normally see if you were just passing through. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Suzanne Roberts' book, Bad Tourist, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.